Our scripture reading today comes from John 6, verses 52 to 53, and 60 to 71. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, If you are new here and you don't know me, I'm uh, Andrew, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus, and welcome. It's good to be with you. Before the message this morning, I want to take just a moment uh, to acknowledge the momentous change uh, that has occurred in our country this week uh, with regards to abortion law. Many of you are probably already familiar with this. We, uh, especially, it is, it is good news, it's great news. But I wanna, I wanna say just a couple things. So if you are new here, uh, if this is your first time or you've, been, you've just been checking us out, I, I wanna make sure you know we are not a partisan political church. It is, it is not our mission as a church to convince you Uh, who to vote for, what political party to support. That is not our mission. However, we do believe we, and from the very beginning of Christ's community, uh, and we believe, tracing back to the historic church worldwide, we stand in a long line of Christian Christian tradition uh, that values and supports life for the most vulnerable. We believe that teaching comes straight from Scripture and who God is, including the unborn, And as the Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade, we know that abortion law will now get complicated as it goes to a state-by-state issue. And we also know, as a church and as God's people, that a change in the law does not necessarily change or alleviate the fear or the shame or the conditions that can make abortion a tempting option for families that find themselves in crisis. And so we know all of that. So what I want us to do now is I'm going to lead us in in prayer, 
I want us to pause and pray together for courage and wisdom and grace in this moment as God's people, okay? So let's pray. Pray with me. Father, we give you thanks because you are the giver of life and you love life from beginning to end, from cradle to grave. And all your children are precious in your sight. And we give you thanks as well for this moment for our country where stronger legal protection for the unborn, for your children, is more possible now than it has been in a very long time. So as your people give us courage to do what is right and also conviction to continue the work of supporting women and men in crisis pregnancy, to foster and adopt children whose parents are not ready to raise them, and to work in areas of education and poverty alleviation to make abortion not only unthinkable, but unnecessary. So Spirit, give us strength to not only be hearers of your word, but doers. We thank you for our call to pursue justice in your kingdom in a broken and hurting world. Make us worthy even now of that calling. Hear our prayers, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, awkward transition. Let's get to the message now. So uh, when I was 14 years old, this was the summer between my middle and high school years. I turned 14, and uh, I was going to a, a new school, I was going to high school, and I was ready for like a rebrand, you know, it was like a new moment. Uh, I was not particularly known for my sports acumen up to this point in my life. Uh, so I thought, now that I'm going to go to high school, I'm going to try a new sport for a new me. And I thought, you know what looks like fun is football. I'm going to try football. <laughs> so you already know where this is going? Is that, yeah. Uh, I thought, it looks like fun. It's obviously, I mean, at least in my day, that was the sport that, you know, made you the most popular. Um, mind you, I never played a snap of football in my life. I can't even remember or recall at this point whether I had, had thrown a football or caught a football ever before. I did not know what a running back was. I didn't know what a wide receiver was. I didn't know what a first down was. None of that. Now, thankfully, I did, so I didn't have the know-how, but I had the frame of a tennis player. So <laughs> the raw ability was there. Uh, so I signed up, and this was you know, sometime early in June. And then pretty quickly, uh, you know, the, season, the, the, the practice season starts. So we went to two-a-days, which is two practices a day, of conditioning. This is like drills, sprints, burpees with, with helmets on. This is Los Angeles in the summer, okay? Really, really hot. And after that week, I think it was two weeks, we started tackling, sort of, you know, hitting. And I couldn't catch or, 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 do, or block. Uh, so I was a fourth string running back. That's kind of where I settled. Uh, so all that to say, when I got the ball, I was getting hit a lot. And that summer, even now, looking back, it, it was probably the most challenging mental and physical conditioning I've ever done. And I, I did cross country. This, this was harder. And I started to, because I thought it would be fun and good for me and a chance to do something new. What I had not accounted for was that it would be hard and that I would want to quit, as many of my friends ended up doing who had started with me. Not everybody made it to the regular season. And for me, I don't think there was a single day that I remember from that summer where I didn't fantasize about throwing off my helmet 
and walking away. I remember running uh, uh, snake drills, which is just running, I mean, it's, it's a version of torture that you can look up later. But <laughs> after I had dropped a ball or something and I was fantasizing with every step about going home, turning on the fan, drinking a Dr. Pepper, eating an entire can of Pringles, and never coming to practice again, okay? But turned out football was not all pep rallies and touchdowns, right? It was hard. Why do I say all of that? Well, we've been looking at John's gospel these last few weeks uh, and looking for signs of life because Jesus promises us the very beginning of John's gospel that he is the life bringer. So we're looking at John's gospel here. And in chapter 6, which we just heard read a few moments ago, we get to a hard moment in Jesus' teaching and ministry. The disciples... And in particular, the 12, Jesus' kind of inner circle, are faced with a choice. And it's a choice that illustrates what it means to actually follow Jesus and to train with him. And it forces an important question on us, especially those who profess to follow Jesus, but also to those who are considering Jesus uh, for the first time. And the question is this, will, will we go with Jesus when others won't? Will we go with him when others won't? Will we stick with him even when it's not easy and it isn't comfortable and it doesn't feel particularly good? So what I want us to do is take a look at this story together. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in your New Testament, chapter 6. And we're going to be there this morning. Now Jesus, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, he has been on an absolute tear in chapter 6. So he starts by feeding over 5,000 people using only five loaves of bread and two fish. And he feeds over 5,000 people. He's teaching in the wilderness in a desolate place and, and the people get hungry as they often do. And he miraculously provides dinner for them, more than enough food for everyone. Pastor Tom mentioned this last week, but this is one of the only miracles that are recorded in all four gospels. That's how important it is. It's a big deal. Uh, so with everybody's tummy full now, Jesus wants to keep teaching, but John points out the people, when they see this, they want to seize Jesus and force him to be their king. And, and by that, they mean to force a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Now, this is the first sign in chapter 6 that things are not going to go as easily and as smoothly as we hope that they will. So after this really high moment of feeding 5,000 people, Jesus has to literally run away, has to get away. And as Pastor Tom told us, Jesus, after that, he walks on water in this incredible display of cosmic power. I mean, we, as, as readers of the, of the Bible, we are meant to recall Genesis chapter 1, where when, when God hovers over the water and makes everything, the act of creation, his power over chaos <clears throat> to create order and beauty and life from nothing, Jesus is now showing his power over the waters of chaos in the Sea of Galilee. And we are meant to ask, who is this guy that has this kind of power? So Jesus, he gets out on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And again, after this incredibly high moment of walking on the water, as the reader, we're ready for this movement to finally get off the ground and for, for Jesus to start gaining momentum. But instead, right after this, Jesus says one of the most offensive and disgusting things you'll ever hear him say. So I want, what I want us to do, put yourself in this moment a little bit. So imagine you and your family, okay, you uh, took a trip out 
to the countryside to see this preacher. Because someone in your family, someone in your neighborhood, someone in your workplace, whatever it was, told you, I don't know, they said, there's this guy. And he's from Nazareth, right? So he's got an accent. You just have to get over that. But he is an incredible teacher. What this man says, what he does is unlike anything I've ever seen. You've got to go hear him. So you and your family, you go out, you follow Jesus and, 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 and his disciples. And you watched what Jesus did. In the, in, you, there, was, there was no food for anybody. And then everybody ate more than enough. And you're so enraptured by him that when Jesus leaves that place and goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, you follow him by boat just to keep listening. He is not disappointed. He has done things you can't explain. He has opened Torah. He has opened God's word in ways that you've never heard before. And you're almost ready to join up. You're thinking, man, where do I sign? So you're, now it's a Saturday. He's teaching in synagogue in Capernaum now. This is like a Sunday morning service for us, okay? It's jam-packed, and Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It's as if Jesus says, listen, crowd, if you were with me, in, uh, the, on the other side of the sea and you thought the loaves and the fishes were tasty, you should try my flesh and my blood. Now, if you grew up in the church or you've read your Bible a lot and you're really familiar with this story, you're already sanitizing it in your mind. You're thinking, oh, but, right, don't do that. Imagine, seriously, put yourself in this moment. Imagine I today stand up and I said, hey, I'm Pastor Andrew, welcome. We're so glad if you're new. If you want eternal life, drink my blood and eat my flesh. Right? You'd pull out your phone and start recording the crazy cult that you found on Sunday morning. That's what you would do. And you would post it online. And it's not like Jesus takes a minute or moment to clarify what he means. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Calm down, everybody. I mean this symbolically. I don't mean, he doesn't do that. He says it and he lets people react. It's understandable that this causes controversy among the listeners, and among the Jewish leaders in particular, as John points out in verse 41. He calls them the Jews, but that's his term for the the religious leadership. Everybody starts grumbling against Jesus. And here's the real kicker, though. This is verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, that, this, this phrase, hard saying, that's in the ESV, depending on what version you're looking at, I'm not sure. But the literal Greek there is, this is a hard word. This word, Jesus, is hard. And the idea here isn't simply like, it's, oh, Jesus, it's confusing, or Jesus, I don't follow. The idea is that Jesus is offensive. This is off-putting to me. I don't want to hear this. It's disgusting. But notice who is saying this. This is no longer the crowd's or the religious leaders, but this is many of his disciples. And remember with me, Jesus had the 12, so he had the the, the disciples he personally called to be his inner circle. But there's also, over time, been many more followers who have, uh, to various degrees, dedicated their time and their attention and maybe even their finances to Jesus' ministry, perhaps for days or weeks or months to this point. 
And that, none of that is a small commitment. Many of them, John says, are offended. And this, here's part of John's point. Jesus will offend you too. Jesus will offend you. Jesus will say things that contradict you, that surprise you, and even offend you. This has always been true. Always. Jesus says and teaches things that are offensive to every culture, every era, and every individual. And if you don't believe me, okay, read the Gospels again. Read these stories of Jesus' life and teaching. And you'll remember there that Jesus once pointed to a Roman centurion. Okay, this is a captain in the Roman army. He pointed to a Roman centurion. This is, this is Matthew 8 and said, that is a model of faith. Mind you, he said this to a bunch of Jewish peasants who at this point had been under Roman occupation for 70 years. And he said, you know what, guys, if you really want to know the God of your fathers, be like this Roman centurion. That's offensive. Jesus would routinely, by the way, argue with and debate the Pharisees. You've probably heard of them before. They were one of the, uh, most of Jesus' conflict, much of it was with the Pharisees. What, what perhaps you don't know is the Pharisees at this time, as far as we can tell, were some of the most popular teachers. People really resonated with them. Jesus would routinely call them snakes and whitewashed tombs and hypocrites. Again, read the Gospels if you don't believe me. All while welcoming and eating with and healing tax collectors, people who worked for the Roman government, prostitutes, Gentiles, sinners. Perhaps Jesus' most famous parable that he ever gave is about a Samaritan helping a Jew. The Jews hated the Samaritans. Hated them. It would be like Jesus telling us today about a really devout Muslim being a better neighbor than a Christian priest, pastor, and missionary who all walked by. In fact, I don't even think that's offensive enough. We don't have an equivalent to what Jesus is doing in that story. Incredibly offensive. So we should not be surprised when Jesus makes us uncomfortable. He's been doing it for a really long time. When he asks us to forgive someone that we don't want to forgive or to listen to someone that we don't agree with or, or he challenges us on our preconceived notions about who we are or who our neighbor is, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He offends religious people. He offends, he offends non-religious people. He offends Democrats and Republicans, cat people, dog people, any way you want to slice it. So how about you? Where's Jesus challenging you? And in fact, if Jesus isn't challenging us, if, if we've not been offended at some point by him, we're probably not listening very well. If it is easier for us to see how Jesus should offend the culture or those people over there, then it is for us to name ways Jesus has or is challenging us. We have probably not listened to the real Jesus very closely. Jesus will offend you. That's on, it seems to be part of his strategy <laughs> to help us grow and to understand the kind of kingdom that he brings that has no human equivalent. It doesn't exist in the, in the world of our politics or our philosophy or our wisdom. And when he offends you, you will be tempted at times to walk away from him, to quit, 
to move on. This is what happens next. This is John verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now again, these are not watchers. These, this is not the crowd. These are not the religious leaders who, who really never get on board with Jesus or who he is in the first place. These are disciples. People who, to, to, to whatever extent, we don't know, but had shown loyalty to, to Jesus at some point. And John does not sugarcoat this. He doesn't say a few walk away or some. Many. Many walk away because of this teaching. And they never come back. Never. That's the idea. They do not come back. And this gets to a point that <laughs> when I wrote it was like, man, this feels so obvious, but I forget this all the time. Following Jesus is really hard. It's hard. Like staying with him and obeying him and loving him through thick and thin and listening to him is really difficult. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science per se, but it's not easy. And this story illustrates for us that there's more than the mere possibility of walking away from Jesus. That's, there's more than the hypothetical situation where we would say we don't want Jesus anymore. There will be times of outright temptation to leave him behind. We will be tempted to do that. Just, just as there is a mysterious gravitational pull at different times in our lives toward Jesus, and some of you, maybe that's how you came to him in the first place. You, you were compelled by some force you couldn't explain. It's like, I have to get closer to this Jesus guy. Just like that exists, there's also a pull away that we have to be mindful of that can sneak up on us. And sometimes that, that pull is an intellectual pull. At least it starts that way. I, I know several Christians who later in life, they encounter some form of doubt or question that for whatever reason, slowly pulls them away from Jesus. In fact, one of my really good friends, someone I've, I've known a long time, who's been following Jesus longer than I have, uh, recently told me this year that he's no longer a Jesus follower. He doesn't believe anymore. And it was largely an intellectual problem. He couldn't square what his experience of life with Jesus teaching about the supernatural. He couldn't do that anymore. Now, doubts and questions, listen to me, are a normal part of human experience. But what we do with them matters. Other times that pull can be a lifestyle pull. Many find that the, that the demands that Jesus makes on our behavior and our attention and our resources, whether that's our money or our time or our schedule or our, our autonomy and our, our, our sexuality, our bodies, those demands look less and less attractive than what we could have without him. And this can be really subtle. We, we may slowly, slowly slip, for example, from feeling like, man, I want to prioritize Jesus, but I'm really busy right now. And after weeks and months and years of neglect, find ourselves saying, you know what, I'd rather just do this other stuff than be near Jesus. It's not important to me anymore. It can be that gradual, like a satellite just slowly losing orbit. You'll never see it unless you're paying attention. Put all this another way. Jesus' call to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves, and to find life in him is incredibly costly. And that cost never goes away. We do not outgrow the call to deny ourselves. 
He demands everything from us, and it is not easy. Sam Albury, he's, he's a good illustration of this. He's a wonderful Christian man and writer and pastor, incredible uh, voice and leader in Christianity. But uh, he, he shares very openly his attraction to men. And because of that, he has embraced a life of celibacy in obedience to Jesus. Now, whatever you may think of that decision, I will simply say that that is an incredible example of faith and conviction and obedience to his understanding of Jesus' call in his life. But you know what he would say to me if I told him that? <laughs> I know because he, he said this recently. This is, listen to him. For many in our churches, the cost of discipleship for the LGBT background people looks cruel and unusual. I think he gets that feedback a lot. I suspect in many cases that's because we're not counting the cost of discipleship in any other areas of life. Jesus says all of us have to say a profound no to some of our deepest longings and intuitions. That is discipleship. Jesus says it up front. He doesn't bury it in the small print. The wonderful paradox of the Christian faith is that as we deny self, we become our real selves. If we're amazed by the faithfulness of people like Albury, Perhaps it is because we have not truly counted the cost of following Jesus ourselves. I feel that. Maybe there's something Jesus is demanding of us that tempts us to walk away from him. Something we don't really want to acknowledge, we don't want to think about. So I want us to ask ourselves, what is one thing that tempts you to walk away? This may take you all week to figure out, and that's okay. But I want you to ask yourself, what's one thing that tempts you to walk away I think this is really important to acknowledge. Perhaps there's a lingering doubt or question or there's a temptation in your life that, that's pulling you. It's, it's asking you to put down your cross and to not follow him. Or maybe it's a crushing disappointment or hardship that you've encountered, a, a broken or, or breaking marriage or a career that you hate or a feeling a failure as a parent or as a friend or as a spouse or, or whatever that leaves you dissatisfied with Jesus. Like, Jesus, you owed me better than what I've had in this life. What is one thing that tempts you to walk away? What is something that would tempt you to say back to Jesus, Jesus, this is a hard word. And I'm done. I'm out. And this could be a good week to confess that to a trusted friend or a spouse or a community group because we need each other. We can't do this alone to stay the course because at some point or another, we will want to walk away or at a minimum, we will want to say no to Jesus' demand on us. We will want to refuse him and Jesus knows that, which is why after all these disciples leave, he turns now to the twelve. And he asks them directly, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Because there are moments along the way, and perhaps you're in one right now, where Jesus will put this question to you in his own way. Are you ready to call it quits? Can you stay with me anymore? And Simon Peter, who is far from the perfect disciple of Jesus, provides a profound answer. This is, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. This is verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. Now notice with me, Peter does not deny reality in this affirmation. He does not, for example, say, Jesus, what you said back there was not a big deal. I get it. Nor does he say, Jesus, we've never dreamed of leaving you. Perish the thought. Never crossed our minds. In a way, Peter's answer, which stands for any follower of Jesus, grants that Jesus can be offensive and difficult to follow and hard to trust, depending on our circumstance and the, the, the condition of our heart, all kinds of things. Peter doesn't deny any of that. Instead, he simply points out, no matter how hard the word may be from Jesus, it is still a word of life. It's a word of eternal life. In fact, Peter can think of no one else and nothing else that offers life the way Jesus does, as hard and as confusing and as offensive and countercultural as Jesus can sometimes be, Peter says, you and you alone have words of life. And sometimes it is the most difficult and painful moments in life that give us the clarity we need to echo Peter's statement here. I remember before I was a believer, before I followed Jesus, there was a moment in my life where I confronted the reality of possibly losing my father. He was really sick. He's okay now. But there was a moment where he was really sick and we didn't know if he was going to make it. And I had to admit in that moment that was forced upon me that none of my beliefs about truth, about the nature of reality, had words of eternal life. My atheism and my indifference, which is where I was, my, my, my rejection of God, my indifference to spiritual things was really easy for me. It required very little of me, and it offered me even less. And that's what I found. And that started me on a path that eventually led me to Jesus. And I've seen this same dynamic at play in other people's lives. I, I've been to funerals of people and families who, for whatever reason, have not taken Jesus very seriously or have over time neglected his call upon their life. But when death shows up, they know where to go. They know whose words. They know whose resurrection power can speak life into hopelessly desperate situations. So where will you go? Where will you go? Perhaps you find yourself today trapped in a doubt or a fear or shame and the cost of following Jesus feels impossible or you're here and you're listening and you're interested in Jesus but you're afraid of what it might cost you to take a next step. It's, and it's important to be sure to wrestle with whether or not you can follow Jesus. Jesus actually commands us to do that. He says, count the cost. And there are moments you will want to walk away or not start in the first place. But I implore you to take Peter's advice and his example seriously. Do not just ask yourself, can I afford to follow Jesus? Ask also, but if not him, then who? Who? It is not easy to deny yourself, to carry your cross, to follow him. This has always been true. From the very first disciples to these 12 people to us in this room right now. If we're following Jesus right, it will push us and confront us in profoundly uncomfortable and unpopular ways. It will. 
There has always been a cost to following Jesus. It demands everything from you. And in return, Jesus says, I will give you life. Hope and despair. I will give you joy and pain. I will give you life beyond death. There are lots of places to go. There's no end of places to go. If you want easy words. If you want words of entertainment, words of distraction, you want words of blind affirmation. But if you want words of life, there's one place that I found where you can find them. Let's pray to him now. Jesus, as we respond to your word this morning, I, I, I acknowledge that across the spectrum of belief that's represented in this room, there are those of us here who don't know what to make of you. There are those of us here who maybe it's just offended by you. There are those of us here who are this close to walking away and there are those who are (laughs) clinging to the words of Peter that you and you alone bring life. And so I lift up each one in your name, Jesus, and I ask, remind us there's nowhere else to go. Remind us you're near and that where you are, there is eternal life. Amen.